Hi, Shin. Oh, hi, Mehdi. I'm so sorry. I was just reading about bionic ears and the regeneration of diabetic pancreases. Pretty crazy. <laughs> can you believe that you can do that nowadays? It sounds like science fiction. Well, we are a little bit beyond this these days. But you could not find a better time for your reading as our today's speaker is a leader in the field of regenerative medicine and you will love the discussion. I'm Shen Ning. And I'm Mehdi Jurfi, and you are listening to a new exciting episode of Science Rehashed. Welcome back. Discovery. Rehashing Science. Welcome back to another episode of Science Rehashed. I'm excited to say that today we have Dr. Anthony Atala with us, one of the foremost leading figures in the field of regenerative medicine and tissue engineering. At Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, Dr. Atala leads a team of more than 400 researchers dedicated to developing cell therapies, engineering replacement tissues and organs for more than 40 different areas of the body. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Atala. Thank you. I'm Anthony Atala, and I'm the director of the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and it's good to be with you today. Wonderful, Dr. Atala. We are honored, and it's a privilege for us to have you in the show today. You are one of the most recognized leaders in the field of regenerative medicines and tissue engineering. So I would like to start with an introduction about what is the tissue engineering and regenerative medicine field, and what is the, the, the central question the field would like to answer? You know, the field of regenerative medicine really tries to accomplish a lot that has to do with making patients better. And it uses various strategies to do so. We're using cell therapies for regenerative medicine, engineering of tissues and organs, 3D printing, CRISPR technologies. So really a range of technologies that together come about to bring changes, positive changes on patients' lives. And what fascinates you about the field of regenerative medicine and tissue engineering? You know, what's most fascinating to me personally is the fact that the field was really considered science fiction just, just a few decades ago. You know, I still remember the early days of the field where the NIH was not taking the field seriously. Funding agencies were skeptical about the, what the field was saying that it could accomplish. And, you know, I mean, here it is, you know, what do you mean you can use cells to create tissue? I mean, that's unheard of, you know? And of course, it is possible to use cells to create tissue, and it is possible to use cells for therapy. And so uh, one of the most incredible things for me in, in my time in the field is seeing the changes of the field from becoming a hypothesis to truly science-driven research to implementation of these strategies for patients. What was the point where there was a light bulb that went off and you were thinking, this is the area I'm going to go into for my career, if that, there is one? You know, actually, there is one I, uh, you know, I trained as a surgeon. I still do surgery. I still have my clinical practice. And during my training, it was at Boston, Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, my boss-to-be, Dr. Alan Reddick, actually started a, a research program in addition to the clinical training. He asked me if I wanted to be the first participant in that program. And I, I stated, uh, absolutely, no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I just want to do the clinical work. 
At which point he said, you know, I really think you would want to do this. And why don't you think about it? So I did. And uh, he said, let's chat in about a week. I said, okay. So I really did think about it. I spoke to my mentors, my professors, my friends, my teachers, my wife, my family. And he called me a week later and said, well, what did you decide? Can you, end, can you do this and, and do this research uh, you know, track that we're starting? And I said, you know, Dr. Reddick, I've really thought about it. I really have. And, uh, and you know, I'm so glad that you told me about this, but the answer is still no. I only want to do the clinical track. At which point he asked to speak to my wife. He got on the phone with my wife and my wife got off the phone, looked at me and said, you know, you really do need to do this. And I said, why? Why do I need to do this? Because, you know, he's, he thinks that would be a good thing for you. So I actually went through the research program. I was exposed to research and it changed my life. And so now I do both clinical work and research, which always makes me say to folks out there, you know, when doors open up, just walk through those doors and be exposed to as much as you can, because you never know what will be your passion. You never know what experience will actually catalyze for you changes in your life that you never thought or expected. You know, and I've actually lived through that uh, in, with my own trainees to make sure that they get trained in many different aspects of what they do so they too can find their passion. That's really wonderful, Dr. Atala. It's really great advice for all the researchers and students listening to us. We can't wait to hear more about your exciting research. Stay tuned. Hey, listeners. Yes, you. We can't wait to hear what you think of our episodes. Please leave your thoughts about Science Rehashed on Apple Podcasts so that I can get to read your comments in our next episode. You're going to read some reviews from Apple Podcasts. And today's review is from E. York T. Our listeners said, Accessible and interesting science. Thank you. I really enjoyed the recent episode on the IPSC treatment of Parkinson's. Such a great summary of decades of progress in the field that flowed seamlessly into exploration of today's cutting edge treatment. And I particularly appreciated the ethics, hard questions about pay to play patients and practices. I'm looking forward to listening more. Thank you so much for leaving that review. Really appreciate hearing from you. So at Science Rehash, we're a team of passionate volunteers who want to bring new science and scientists' journey through this podcast to you. We would really appreciate your support in the form of being our patron or simply spreading the word about us to your friends. You can find more information about our Patreon account on our website, sciencerehash.com, under the Support Us tab. All right, let's dig into the science now. Dr. Artala, in a recent paper you published with your group on nature biotechnology, you showed that you're able to use tissue-engineered uterus to support live births in rabbits. Tell us what inspired this idea and how did you go about achieving this? Yes, believe it or not, this research started about 18 years ago, actually. It started a long time ago. It started out just as a concept. And it really underscores how difficult these technologies really are to get to the point where you can really use them. Because you're, when you're engineering a tissue or an organ, uh, you know, you're really relying on everything a tissue does to make it successful. And therefore, it's important to not just figure out the cells and the biology of the cells and the molecular biology of what you're doing, but also the genetics, the physiology, pharmacology, biomechanical properties, biomaterial sciences. It's really 
a conglomerate of different scientists coming together to bring about the success of a technology all the way to a patient-driven goal. Great. And why did you want to do this in the first place? What was kind of the motivating factor? When we started the work with the uterus, we had already been able to engineer other tissues. And, and we had engineered already things such as bladder tissue or urethral tissue. And we were working on vascular tissue. And the uterus is an organ of such major need. The uterine uh, factor in fertility is a major problem for women who want to conceive today. And there are limited challenges. They're, you know, there are limited solutions to these challenges. And so one of the major things that we wanted to do was, can we actually apply some of these tissue engineering strategies to in fact create an actual uterus that can function long term? And it sounds like, as you mentioned, it's 18 years in the making. So what were some of the major challenges you faced during this process? So the major challenges early on, like with any other tissue we were targeting, was the cell biology. We have to think back to just three decades ago when most human cell types could not be grown and expanded outside the body. So if you look at the whole body literature in terms of cell biology, you could use cell lines to expand. In other words, you could take cells that you could transfect or convert to actual cell lines, but they were not normal primary cells. And the basis of these technologies for patients, for regenerative medicine, is using the patient's own cells. So having primary human cells that you can actually grow and expand outside the body was a challenge of itself, because that was really the challenge just a few decades ago. It's easy to forget that today, now that we can grow these cells. But back then, it was a challenge. So just getting the normal uterine cells to grow and to be able to expand them in large quantities and for them to retain their features was a feat of in itself. And then, of course, looking at material sciences to use materials that you could combine with the cells to finally create the tissue. And what, what is the main challenge with uterus compared to other organs like skin or other organs in the field of regenerative medicine? So when we come to looking at actual organs in the field, we're looking at levels of complexity. And you're looking at flat structures as being the least complex, like skin. Now, skin in itself is extremely complex, but architecturally speaking, flat structures are the least complex. The next level of complexity are tubular structures like blood vessels or urethras. Because you are having more of an architectural design that is required to make sure that these structures remain patent. The third level of complexity are hollow non-tubular organs. Here, the organs are really much more complex because you're dealing not just with the cells and the architectural organization of the organ, but also there's more interaction with other organs. And finally, the most complex organs are the solid organs, like the heart, the liver, the lungs, because they have so many more cells per centimeter that it really becomes very complex to create these structures with adequate blood supply. So when it comes to the uterus, we're talking about a hollow non-tubular organ. When we're talking about hollow non-tubular organs, the most complex of the organs in that category is in fact the uterus. And the reason for that is that the uterus goes through incredible changes during a time of gestation. So the uterus is a hollow non-tubular structure that is small. Then at the time of conception, it has to be able to receive the egg and the sperm. It has to allow fertilization to occur. It has to allow embryo attachment to occur. 
an embryo development all the way to a fetus that can be delivered alive. And the changes that occur during that time period are just amazing. I mean, if you're talking about an organ that undergoes such transformational change in a very short period of time, the uterus is that organ. And therefore, that is why when we talk about flat, tubular, hollow non-tubular, and solid organs, if right below solid organs is the uterus in terms of its complexity. And why not transplanting? So, you know, you can transplant uterine structures, and that's been a great advance. And, you know, it's really nice to see that some patients have benefited from this technology. But as you know, to actually do a uterine transplant, you do need to immunosuppress the patient. First, you need a donor that, you know, that you can get the uterus from. Then you need to have organ matching. And then you need uh, to have anti-rejection medications. And you are doing this in amidst having a pregnancy. So having that, that immune rejection regimen with all these medications during a time of pregnancy could have adverse effects, not just to the mom, but the developing fetus. And so if we are able to get away from rejection, that would be ideal. And by creating an engineered uterus and using the cells from the same patient to create the uterus, then you're really doing away with the rejection concerns. And now you have an organ that you can keep for the rest of your life as needed. Fantastic. This is really great. Let's get into the nitty gritties of what this tissue engineered uterus looks like. So I'm you know, really excited about learning more about the material science aspect of this fabricated uterine construct. Can, can you walk us through, you know, the thoughts behind it? What are the considerations when creating this engineered tissue and conclusions you guys come up with in order to achieve the result that was published? Absolutely. So, you know, we talked about the cells and how important the cells are. And they're tr truly the most important thing, right? Because you're taking a very small biopsy, a very small piece of tissue from that patient. You're expanding the normal cells and making sure you have the right cells with the right release criteria that are going to make the tissue that you need. But the other major component are the biomaterials, like you mentioned. And these biomaterials are critical because you want these biomaterials to facilitate the process of regeneration. And so you want these cells to attach to these materials and you want the, the materials to be receptive to cell attachment, cell viability, cell growth with a minimal inflammatory response. So these structures have the chance to develop. And then you have to look at the properties of the material. So all the materials that we use are fully degradable. So that once we place a construct in vivo, we implant it, the cells are able to take over the regeneration approach and as these materials start to degrade, the cells themselves start to lay down their own matrix, which is what happens in your own body, right? In your very own body, as we develop embryologically, the cells themselves are the ones that are creating that bridge where they reside. And so we're using the biomaterials as a temporary bridge, if you will. And so when the cells attach to that bridge, the bridge is built naturally with these materials to degrade through this strategy that we use for engineering tissues. So as the bridge starts to degrade, the cells themselves sense that the bridge is giving way, at which point the cells start then to secrete their own matrix. And six months later, you're left with a patient's own cells 
and the patient's own matrix. Because the material that you put in by now is totally gone, which has now been replaced with the cell's own matrix, which is what should be there to start with. So the design of the materials is very important because if those materials degrade too quickly, then the cells do not have a chance to do what they're supposed to do and the bridge will collapse and not lead to normal regeneration. On the other hand, if the bridge gives way too late or it goes away too late, then the cells start to lay down their own bridge, but you end up with increased fibrosis because of the reaction that the materials are causing on the system. So the materials are designed to be fully degradable, but they have to break down at the right time. And that has to be calculated strictly and very specific to each organ type because each tissue type has different characteristics on how this bridge gets made. So all these are the fine features that need to be tested over and over again until you find the right formula that will allow for these organs to develop normally over time. Wonderful. Okay, let's move on to the experiment set up in the paper that published in Nature Biotechnology, where you optimize, which I assume took 18 years, optimize all these scaffolding materials for the uterus, and then you use rabbit as a model to, to conduct all the experiment. Could you walk us through the experiments, what has been done, what was the outcome, and why rabbit? Why not other models? Yeah, that's an excellent question, because, you know, the, the fact is, that when you're talking about regeneration, in fact, everything in a mouse would regenerate on its own right, because there's this maximum distance for regeneration where the body really takes over and regenerates on its own. And I always give the example, which people can relate to, is that you're shaving one morning and you cut yourself shaving and it bleeds like crazy, but you know, two days later, there's nothing there. You, there's not even a scar, nothing, no evidence that you ever cut yourself shaving. Yet a pediatric surgeon can go to the operating room, use the same size blade that is being used in your razor. And when that surgeon makes an incision on that patient, 100% of the time, there's going to be a scar. So what's the difference? The difference is the size of the defect. Because beyond a certain size defect, that it will not regenerate on its own. When you cut yourself shaving, you fully regenerate on your own because the defect is small. And so that's the analogy. When you're using uh, rodent models like mice and rats, pretty much everything will regenerate in a mouse or a rat. You put in silk paper. In fact, there are, there's, there are papers in the literature showing how you can use silk paper to regenerate organs. But of course, that would never work in a human, right? I mean, you can use anything in a mouse or a mice and a rat and it'll regenerate because the distance is so small that it'll regenerate regardless of what you do. And therefore, you really do have to go to a larger animal model where you can create a critical size defect that is beyond that natural distance of regeneration. It turns out that when we talk about regenerative medicine, that distance is typically anything that is greater than half a centimeter from any edge. And at that point, you do need materials and cells. So you can bridge the gap with materials. So you can actually, if you cut yourself shaving, you don't need a material to put in there for you to regenerate because the, the, that is a small gap. 
If it were a little bit of a larger gap, you can use uh, materials to actually help you bridge the gap. But if you are talking about defects which are larger than half a centimeter from any edge, you're going to need both the materials and the cells together. And now you're creating critical size defects that are really uh, what you would expect to see in a human. Just to clarify, there is no correlation between the size of the defect and the size of the animal. That is correct, because in the mouse it will regenerate. And of course, it'll regenerate because of the size of the mouse, basically. I mean, if you can think about it, all the organs within the, a mouse model, a rodent model, are typically, typically you cannot create a critical size defect in a mouse model inside, inside the animal. And so that is a challenge. And therefore, when you go to the human, you're, you're not talking about five, five millimeters. You're talking about, you know, many centimeter gaps, where you're talking about, you know, large structures which could be you know, eight by 10 centimeters. And to do that, you need a rapid model to actually create structures that are that large that you have the confidence that when you put it into a human, it's also going to regenerate. Can you clarify the type of primary cell you use in the tissue engineering constructs and the type of scaffolding material? And why was it important? I mean, other than, you know, the biodegradable aspect and also it had to be kind of dissolve at a certain time point. What other materials were you considering and why did you go ahead and choose the ones you used in the paper? So when we creating the uterus, the two major cell types in the uterus are the endometrial cells, which are the lining cells inside the uterus, and the myometrial cells, which are the muscle cells on the outside of the uterus. These are the two major components. Therefore, these are the two major cell types that we grew and expanded outside the body. And then we used, we tested many materials. We used the polyglycolic acid base material that we modified as, uh, as we needed to, to make sure that this would degrade at the right time by using different fiber sizes and different concentrations of material. And so by putting all this together, then we could engineer a tri-layer structure that consisted of all the layers that were present in the uterus. And in fact, that's what was shown in the study. And that we showed, you know, for many years, we did these experiments to show that we could in fact create this tri-layer structure that had all the elements of what you would expect to find in a normal uterus, including the glands. And that this construct would in fact be sufficient to promote conception and fetal development all the way to term. Wow. Do they develop into all the different cell types naturally by themselves without stimulation, or did you have to use certain hormones or uh, media in order to guide them to go there? Yeah. So certainly in the in vitro stage, we use a defined media that helps us to create the constructs. And then once you put into the in vivo environment, you know, the body's providing all the growth factors that are needed to continue the development process. And therefore, what you find is that, you know, when you're looking at this histologic sections over time, you can see the progressive development of the structure to full development when the cells have now laid down their own matrix and replaced the material that we put in. You really truly end up with a um, histological assessment that basically is like that of a normal uterus. And that's what the paper showed as well. And going back to the rabbit model, unlike a human, the female rabbit has a different reproductive tract. What has been done to make sure that you recapitulate as closely as possible the, the humans? 
You know, that's a good question because the rabbit uterus, unlike the human uterus, is bicornuate, which means that there are two uterine horns as opposed to just a single uterus that a human has. So we use that to our advantage because what we ended up doing is we actually excised one of the uterine horns. And then we were able to use in one set of, of experiments and in the other set of experiments, we're able to leave the opposite uterine horn as a control in the same animal. So you could actually have the ability to have the same animal be your own internal control with these two uterine horns, which was really a big advantage for us in terms of defining the study. And just to clarify, the horns are the, the points that the fallopian tubes meet the, the, the uterus, right? So basically, instead of having a single uterus, where you have the ovaries and the fallopian tubes coming into, into a single uterine cavity, you actually have two fallopian tubes and two ovaries going into two different uterine structures, which are connected into one in the rabbit model. So... I, I'm curious now, you've demonstrated in rabbits, what do you think are the, the chances that this, this could work in a human? Well, you know, we're continuing to do the studies. It took us 18 years to get to this point. You know, we could actually show that we could, you know, create these engineered uterine structures, that these uterine structures were sufficient for fertilization and, and bringing the fetal development all the way to term and to deliver these fetal pups alive. So that's the work that we did with the rabbit. Of course, now, we have to continue that work, and we are continuing that work with uh, even larger animal models in preparation to take this all the way to the humans at some point. How many years do you estimate that will take? You know, I learned a long time ago never to predict those numbers because you're <laughs> never right. Okay. Uh, and, uh, but, but science is unpredictable. <laughs> science is unpredictable. You know, we of course, we've taken other tissues to patients, as you know. We've taken a number of engineered organs to patients already, including vaginal organs, right, to patients. So we've actually engineered vaginal organs that have been implanted into patients, which is very closely related. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, so it is possible, of course, to bring these engineered tissues into patients and to have these patients benefit from these structures. But it takes a lot of work and time as well to get it all the way to the patient because there's so many other things that we have to check, all these boxes we have to check to make sure that the technology will eventually be safe long-term, which is our primary concern before we take anything to the patient. And, and what do you think the biggest challenge in translating this technique into human? Of course, we've shown that this can work in a rabbit model. And that gives us a lot of confidence that we have critical size defects that will work in humans. But at the end of the day, we still have to do even larger animal models that approximate the size and dimension of that of we would that we would be implanting exactly into a human, and that's what we're working on right now. Now, I want to ask a few last questions. One is about the field of uh, regenerative medicine as a whole and where it's going. What do you foresee, kind of the the next biggest breakthroughs to be in this field in the next ten years? Well, you know, the field is really moving fast right now. And a lot of the efforts, you know, we're spending a lot of efforts right now on biomanufacturing, being able to scale up these technologies. We have a major biomanufacturing effort with what's called the Regenerative Medicine Development Organization. And this involves a workforce development. It involves uh, a test bed. It involves incubators. 
to bring these technologies to patients. It involves, you know, support through the Regenerative Medicine Manufacturing Society and all these elements that come together to really help to accelerate these technologies to patients. Because really the next frontier for the field is to be able to scale up these technologies so we can reduce the cost of production. So there's better adaptability by the healthcare market to bring these technologies to patients. So a lot of our efforts are really uh, being spent right now on biomanufacturing for regenerative medicine. And of course, with a lot of the things that come along with it, like 3D printing, right? So we can actually scale up the engineering of these tissues with 3D printing and really help to accelerate all these elements so that we can get more of these tissues and organs and expand the number of tissues that we can put into patients. That's a really great point. I think those are, I think, beyond the science a little bit and definitely bigger questions uh, for the field as a whole. I would like to ask a non-science question. As we are also humans before being scientists, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do when you are not a scientist or a clinician? So, you know, because I love, I do the clinical work and, uh, and I do the research work, I love both. So those are really, I mean, really, I never feel like I'm at work because I'm really doing what I love, which is also important to say that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. You know, I've heard that said many times and I really do believe it. But in addition to that, I have, you know, my family. And uh, so every free moment that I have, I spend it with my family going on on hikes, you know, swimming and doing everything we can to spend as much time together. So all my free time is spent uh, with family activities, really. If you need inspiration, for example, is there something that you happen to do or read or watch or listen to? Yeah, so I love to read. I love to read books. So that's one of my pastimes as well. So I always have a a stack of three or four books on my night table and I read a lot, actually. I read a, a lot about that. Uh, I love uh, to read uh, historical books. I love to read books about uh, science and geography and discoveries and, and just history, because I, I feel you can learn a lot from history. So I absolutely love history books, because you, know, you, you start to analyze how people went about doing things and how they came to do what they did. And uh, we have so many, you know, People have done just amazing things in life, and it's just always inspiring to me to read about them and what they've been able to do and what they've been able to accomplish and how they did it. You know, we're all humans. We're all humans, so we all have our, you know, our weaknesses. And the question is not just, you know, what those weaknesses are, but what are the things you need to do to overcome those weaknesses to really find uh, a better you? and what you accomplish. And by reading these books, it really inspires me constantly to try to find a better me. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That was really inspirational, both from the scientific perspective, but also from career and professional development perspective. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been great to be with all of you today. That was so inspirational. I was really surprised that regenerative medicine is really not science fiction and that wonderful scientists like Dr. Atala are working on bridging the gap between what seems impossible and reality. But also, we should follow our passions and never be afraid to walk 
through new doors and go on new adventures. And I think that's really important for everyone, especially budding scientists, to have that passion and courage. What about you, Mehdi? Well, after listening to Dr. Atala's stories about his wife helped his career decision, it just reminded me to accurately say that behind every big man, there is a wonderful woman. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. And thanks to Dr. Rudy Tanzi for providing us with the music for our outro. We really value our incredible team who make Science Rehash possible. And this includes our writers and producers, Madora Lolikar, Kira Brenner, Dr. Shuang Zeng, Dr. Chira Maffei, and Lauren Granada. Our marketing director, Dr. Carla Diavanzo. Our social media manager, Eileen Amador. Our business development director, Michi Lo. Our sound editors, Sophia Nastri, Javi Pollard, Jared Warsoff, and Phineas Dollings. Our video producer, Mattingly Wood. Our web manager, Rebecca Solson, and our creative director, Emma Brand. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and don't miss our next episode on Dr. Paula Hammond, who is not only was my postdoc mentor, but also a world leader in layer-by-layer nanomedicine and the first woman to lead the chemical engineering department at a world-class university. Also, if you don't want to miss any of our upcoming episodes, subscribe to Science Rehash on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to your podcast. Also, don't forget to tell us what you think about our episodes in the comment section. For updates, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can visit our website at sciencerehash.com. Thank you for listening.